following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I feel like uh, last week's sermon and this week's uh, as well have, um, have had a, a kind of a, a theme, and I haven't been trying to, to make that happen, but it has. It, I feel very much like I have been and will again today be critical of the American church. I'm acknowledging this at the beginning and letting you know that that was really not my focus or my emphasis going into these two messages, but someone's got to say it, and so I'm going to. And so let's dive into it. We're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, asking his blessing on our time together in the scriptures. Will you please look at verse 38? John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we, we do come and we just want to thank you for the ministry of CPC. Just watching that video, it's just powerful what you can do. And even yesterday at the walk, seeing just seeing examples, living examples of, of children who have been spared because of how you've worked in this ministry. This, is, this isn't just a political issue. This isn't just a social issue. This is life and death for these babies so thank you for your work there, and I do pray on behalf of, of men, men in the church, men outside of the church, that we stop acting like a bunch of fools who think that they can do whatever they want and just enjoy, these, enjoy life and, and take advantage of women and then walk away as if they have no responsibility. This is our fault primarily, and, and the focus is always on the ladies for obvious reasons, but but it's us. We are the, we're, the, we're the real problem here. So, Father, will you wake men up in relation to this issue of abortion? Father, as we come now into your word, I pray that you will just speak to us and open our eyes to see your truth. Uh, I, I don't want this to be critical, and I certainly cannot voice accurately or well enough the, the truths that are, are clear here in the text. I just pray that you will do a work not just here at Cornerstone, but across your church as a whole, regardless of of its name. It doesn't matter. We need to come back to a right understanding, Jesus, of you and your kingdom and what you're doing here in this world. This is is your church, and and you're building it, and we're just thankful to be a part. And so help us to have the right heart as we participate in your plan to spread your kingdom to the ends of the earth, earth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there used to be, uh, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, I don't exactly know when it ended, a little newspaper or newsletter of sorts that was called the Alabama Christian Advocate. And I don't know much about the newspaper, but there was an article that appeared in the June 29, 1948 edition of this uh, paper that I'd like to read a quote from. The, the quote is by a pastor or a preacher from Alabama named uh, Levi Elder Barton, and I know nothing about him as a man as well. I just know that he was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was writing an article about the recent 
Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, or as I like to call it, the Southern Baptist Convention Convention. Just because when you have convention in your name, it opens that one up for you. But uh, he was writing about the recent uh, annual meeting they had had. And in that article, not only was he reviewing and commenting on that specific meeting, but he was also discussing the significance of the SBC as a whole, both in his day and age, as well as in the larger kingdom of God. All right, here's the quote from his article that I think will explain his position. Quote, I am more tremendously convinced than ever, 1948, that the last hope, the fairest hope, the only hope for evangelizing this world on New Testament principles is the Southern Baptist people represented in that convention, unquote. Now, let me just say, I don't have anything against the SBC, and nor is this guy necessarily a good representative of it, but without answering this question out loud, how does that particular quote strike you? I mean, just think about what he said, that the, the last hope, the fairest hope, the only hope for evangelizing this world on New Testament principles is the SBC. Does it come across as a bit maybe pompous to you? Arrogant, yeah. Um, as if they're the only ones who have everything, you know, uh, that they believe figured out and doing what's right, that, that there's no other biblical or faithful way that the world could ever be reached apart from the SBC, no other denomination or church or not even Christianity as a religion, not even, not even the gospel particularly itself, specifically the hope is the SBC, at least it was in his mind in that article. And I would like to say that this kind of thinking is rare. Uh, but if you have been in churches at all, ever, then you know that it's not. In fact, it's far more common than I think most of us realize, perhaps even in our own hearts. Many Christians believe that their church, their denomination, their particular uh, flavor or brand of Christianity, however they want to think of it, is the one and only uh, 100% biblically accurate version, and therefore is also, whether they would ever say these words or not, is really the only hope this world really has, as if, again, they are the only ones who have everything they believe right and do everything right, and everyone else doesn't. And because they think this, it causes many Christians and churches and denominations to be very territorial, right? They, they begin to think, well, hey, don't mess, with, uh, don't mess with our area because we're the only ones in this area who've got the franchise on truth who can accurately, you know, preach the gospel to the people around us, they become unkind to other churches or anyone that they don't perceive as having the same uh, uh, status within God's plan or kingdom that they do, and even sometimes, unfortunately, become belligerent towards one another in those realms. And this kind of thinking isn't new, right? It's not new since 1948. It's been around since a lot longer than 19. 48, uh, I think it's where we're at here today in Mark. Last Sunday, I introduced this second uh, failure cycle that we're in to you. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that message because it'll set a foundation for not just what we're going to do today, but over the next few weeks as well. But in a nutshell, Mark is using this cycle of foretelling, failure, and then correction or teaching to show some ways in which the disciples had come to a wrong understanding of both who Jesus is and what he's doing and what this kingdom that he was bringing was really going to look like. They expected Jesus to do certain things, and they expected that this kingdom that he's, keep, he's kept talking about over and over again over the past couple of years is going to 
It's going to look a certain way, and they're going to enjoy certain privileges in it. And so Mark gives us these three foretellings of Jesus' death, where he's very clear each time. He's very clear as to what God's plan is. Here's what's really going to happen. I'm going to do this. This is going to occur. This is going to occur, etc. Uh, and after each of those clear foretellings, the disciples show us just how little they're actually paying attention. The second foretelling was the one we looked at last Sunday in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Jesus is very clear, and immediately after, the disciples begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest, or do you remember the, the Greek word that's actually being used there, the megas, right? Not, the, not just like someone who's great, but like the greatest of the great. Like they're thinking hierarchy, they're thinking structure, they're arguing about their own importance and about how clear that importance will be to others. And so Jesus begins that correction process by turning their paradigm upside down. As you're probably picking up now, he does every time, right? Whatever they think, you're probably safe to assume is wrong. Okay, whatever they think, the opposite is going to be the correct answer. This is true here too. They're worried about who's the greatest. Jesus comes along and says that whoever would be first has to be last of all and servant of all. That greatness in Jesus' kingdom is achieved through leastness, which I know is not a word, but we're going to keep using it because it's the right word to use here. Leastness is the way you become great in Jesus' kingdom, by being last and being the servant. And not only will greatness be achieved through leastness, but his kingdom will be populated by people who are like the least as well. And so he illustrates this for them by putting a child in the midst. Remember that? And he said to them, uh, whoever receives one such child in my name receives not just the child, but me. And if you're receiving me, it's not just me, it's the one who sent me. And I don't think he's talking about children there. He's going to talk about children in chapter 10. I think in this case, he's using the child as an example of all those who, like children in that culture, had no status, no rights, no voice. There were nothings. He's talking about the, the undervalued and the ignored and the forgotten of this world. In other words, he's saying that the most prominent names on earth will not be prominent really at all in the kingdom of God that he's bringing. It's going to be populated by nobodies, people you've, you and I have never heard of, some of us who have never been heard of. Greatness comes through leastness in his kingdom, but the disciples, they don't understand that. And so Mark gives them, a, gives us, excuse me, a series of stories that are designed to show this dramatic paradigm shift. Uh, what we have here is five scenes. And in these five scenes, we're going to watch Jesus act and talk in ways or in a manner in which that it's going to illustrate how he takes the side of people that you wouldn't expect him to take the side of in that culture. And how he doesn't take the side of some people that you would expect him to take the side of in that particular culture. And I, and I love this first scene that we're looking at today because Mark begins with a story of Jesus addressing this very issue, not with the culture at large. He doesn't start out there. He starts in here, like with his own disciples, with the believers, with, with his own group. And so let's just get a handle on this by looking at the scenario that Mark is presenting to us here in chapter 9. Mark writes that John, and this is the only time I believe that John acts on his own in the Gospel of Mark, just a little interesting tidbit, that John says to Jesus, Teacher, 
we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now let's just stop and consider the, the extreme irony of this particular situation, because it's funny. In fact, it's one of those, those things that makes me think that God must have a sense of humor, and that's why we have a sense of humor as well, because this is, this is too specific to not have been purposeful on the Spirit's part. What had just happened back in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29? Story we just looked at like two, three, four weeks ago now. Remember, Jesus had been up on the mountain being transfigured before the disciples, and as he's coming down, he notices a crowd has gathered around the remaining nine. And he walks up to the crowd, and he's like, what's going on? And a guy runs forward, and he's like, teacher, rabbi, my son has a demon, and I came to the disciples asking them to cast him out, and they couldn't. Do you remember, you remember that? And so Jesus cast the demon out, and then later, the disciples asked, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus explains, I'm just summarizing very quickly, that it was because of their lack of faith, their lack of dependence on God. It was because at some point along the way, they had forgotten that their authority to cast out demons was one that was given to them by Jesus. It wasn't their authority. It was Jesus' authority. They were supposed to be acting in his name, not theirs. And because they had forgotten this, they were unsuccessful against this particular demon in this particular story. It just happened. Do you remember that? Now, look back at verse 38 and look at the man that John is talking about. We don't know anything about this guy, really more than just two points. First, not only is he attempting to cast out demons, he's apparently successful at it. Because John tells Jesus that they saw it. They saw someone casting out demons demons. The disciples themselves appear to be witnesses of the man's success. Second, note that he's doing this work in Jesus's name. In other words, he's doing it as if he is an ambassador of Jesus, ministering on his behalf, as if his authority that he's utilizing in this casting out of demons, this exorcism, is not his own authority, but is rather someone else's, Jesus's, and he apparently recognizes that because he's doing it in his name. And can I just make a, a, a quick side note on that point? When I say that he's doing it in Jesus's name and under his authority, I, I, I mean that literally. Like he's literally doing it in his name. In other words, I don't think this is just a case of someone who wanted to have power over demons and so they decide to throw out the name of Jesus, sort of like a talisman that might bring them power against the evil spirits. You see an example of that happen in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Luke tells us the following story. He says, then, and just so you understand what the then is referring to, is looking back to some amazing things that Paul and the apostles had been doing and, and casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the gospel. So this, is, this has all been going on. Paul's doing all this great stuff. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Doesn't Sceva sound like the name of like one of those like skin medications you see a commercial? Isn't there one out there called Sceva? I didn't look it up, but as I was reading it this morning, I'm like, this sounds familiar, and I don't know why. But anyway... Here these guys are. They don't believe in Jesus. They're, they're not only just Jewish. They're sons of the high priest. 
But they want to have power over demons. And so they're like, well, hey, when other people use the name of Jesus, it, stuff happens. Let's try it ourselves. Let's go out and do some exorcisms and throw the name of Jesus out, and let's see what happens. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. As you can see, trying to use the name of Jesus simply as, as a talisman against evil spirits is probably not your best strategy, all right? His name isn't, isn't a magic formula. It's not there just to give you some power that other people wouldn't possibly have, right? Because you threw out the name of Jesus, now all the forces of evil are at your beck and call. And so my assumption is, from what John is reporting here, is that this man, whoever he is, He's a true believer. He's a true believer in Jesus, that he's listened to his message, that he has believed it, and that he has partnered with Jesus in this fight against the forces of evil. And final comment to our thoughts about him, really, that God is working through this man. He is successfully casting out demons in the name of, under the authority of, and independence on, Jesus. This is the irony. <laughs> because this man is, from what little we know about him, everything that the disciples weren't back in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Do you see the irony now? Do you see what the and see, so what did the disciples do in response to this then, okay? Like, here's this guy, he's doing everything that they weren't doing. He's successful, he's dependent on God, they weren't. What do they do? They try to stop him. Again, just, just note the irony here. They themselves are the witnesses of this man's faith in action, I'll call it. They themselves are the witnesses both of his success and of his apparent faith in Christ. They are the ones affirming these things to the Lord. Jesus, we saw it. We heard it. And yet they try to stop him, which implies again that they were unsuccessful even in that. We tried. <laughs> We couldn't even stop him, Lord, just like we couldn't cast out demons. We, we couldn't stop the guy who could. And, and what reason do they give for this attempt to stop this man? Because he was not following us. Now, I'm just curious. In that final little phrase there, the reason for why they're trying to stop him, does any one particular word stand out to you, perhaps? Maybe, maybe the word because? Like, no, that doesn't. That's just giving you the reason. Uh, maybe the word he. No. That's just talking about the guy. The word following? No. Oh, how about the word us? Because they're not, he wasn't following us. And if you're not clear on why that particular word should, should stand out to you and be weird here, let's just change it for a moment to see how reading it in a different way or with a different word, how a different word would have changed our understanding here. What if they had said you? We stopped him because he wasn't following you. Well, at least now it sounds a little bit noble, right? It might still be dumb. It might still be the wrong decision, but at least now it, it sounds a little bit noble. It sounds maybe as if their concern is about Jesus, right? Uh, of course, they didn't say that. They said us. In other words, the problem here is apparently, in the disciples' minds, that this man is not a part of the recognized group 
And I want you to keep that phrase in your mind, because I won't do this every time, but I mean this every time, okay? <laughs> the recognized group. The recognized group was made up, no doubt, of Jesus, the 12 disciples, and I'm sure a few other people who followed along with them as well, whoever was recognized and known to the disciples. It was in the context of the recognized group that the disciples had just been arguing about who was the megas, who's the greatest in the group, who's going to be the top dog that's over top of the, the pyramid and the hierarchy in this kingdom that we're going to be in. So they're, they're establishing their hierarchy of importance within that group. This guy here, he's not a part of that group. He, he doesn't uh, uh, fit into their mold, and not to beat a, Ned, uh, a, Ned horse, a dead horse, but notice that the disciples aren't attempting to stop him for some kind of doctrinal reason, as if he's speaking or acting in a way contrary to the truth, uh, truth that Jesus had revealed. They're not even trying to stop him from some, for some uh, philosophical or practical reason. They're attempting to stop him only. That's the only reason they give, because he's not one of them. That's his only problem. He's not one of us. He's not in the group. He's operating outside the bounds of that. He's a rogue agent. He doesn't fit in the hierarchy. The problem is nothing more here than he is not one of them. And so Jesus answered them, do not stop him. <laughs> I, I think Jesus yelled this. Understand that in Greek, there is no punctuation, all right? So any punctuation you see in your English translation has been added by your translator to try to help you make sense of their language better because they didn't have that and we do. So 99% of the time, sure, it's spot on. This is one time I think they may have used the wrong punctuation mark because my translation has a comma. I'm wondering if it should be an exclamation point is if Jesus is like, what is your problem? What is your problem? Don't stop him. He believes in me. He's acting in my name. He's successful. You weren't. Don't stop him. Like, can you, can you picture it? Can you picture Jesus responding to this? And having given them this very simple, to-the-point command as a response, he now gives them three reasons as to why this man should not be stopped. And just so you can see them clearly, each reason begins with the word for. All right. You see the first one here in verse 39. I'm calling it the pragmatic reason. You can call it whatever you want. I just wanted to give a title to it. He says, For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Now let me just, let me just draw your attention to um, something right off the bat that's going to apply to all three reasons. You, you get the sense here in this particular one that Jesus is speaking in a context of adversity, do you not? If, if he's doing a mighty work in my name now, he's not later going to be able to speak evil against me. This is a real, a real situation that Jesus has to deal with. In other words, he knows that there are people speaking evil of him as we read. Like in the same time, in the same context, this is going on around him. They are not in a context which is overly friendly or sympathetic to their cause or to their message. You, you can't forget that. Jesus is in enemy territory, so to speak. Uh, people are plotting to kill him. The majority of the people around him are against him. Jesus isn't operating in a friendly context. He's not even in a neutral context. He is in hostile territory, and he knows this. And you have to remember this context as we read and as we try to understand these three reasons. If you don't, you're going you're gonna to lose your way. And you see it explicitly referred to here when he talks about people speaking evil 
of him. He says here the reality is that if you're doing a mighty work in my name, you won't soon be able to come along behind me and just be like, yeah, that guy's a, he's wrong. Well, wait, didn't you just do a work in his name? Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, he's, he's still off base. I just, I thought, yeah. But, you know, you see the problem? Pragmatically, you can't say one good thing about him and do good stuff here and then turn around and speak evil of him as if his name is some kind of talisman that you can just throw around for power. No, to use his name, to work in his name, is to identify with Jesus and his message in a real and meaningful way. The people who are out there working in my name, Jesus says, they're not soon going to become our enemies, which leads to the second reason. And you see this one here in verse 40. I call it the identification reason. And it just builds right off of the, of the first one. For the one, he says, who's not against us, he's, he's for us. And again, you have to understand and apply this in the context of adversity for it to make accurate sense. You see, in a friendly or neutral context, I think this would lead us into some weird errors in terms of if we try to apply it just one-to-one, apples-to-apples when it's not. I mean, let's use the American modern American context as an example. Certainly, you, like me, no doubt, know unbelievers who are not against Jesus. Do you know what I mean? We know people, they're not believers, very clear. They would say that if you talk to them about, no, I don't believe the gospel. I don't, I don't even believe in God. I don't believe anything about what you believe. But they're not, like, against you in it. They're kind of neutral. Yeah, whatever you believe is fine. I'll believe my thing, you believe you think it's just a fairy tale whatever you want to think is fine are these people for us no you say well they're not against us and jesus says then if they're not against us they're for us right uh no there's a sense maybe in which they're not on our side but they're also not on Jesus' side either they just don't care however if i could and i don't know that this is a perfect um counter example but it's the best i could come up with run that same scenario again in any modern ISIS-controlled territory on the planet. Now, if you're not against Jesus, there's, better, there's probably a reason why, right? Because the people who are for Jesus are being attacked. They're now in a context of adversity where the vast majority of people around them are, are not just you know, neutral toward the gospel, they are antagonistic toward the gospel. And so if you're not against Jesus in that context you're probably for him. Does that make, do, you, do you understand just the slight nuance of difference between one context to the next and how what Jesus says changes depending on how you read it? The context here matters very, very much. In Jesus' context, the Jewish leaders and the people, they are, this isn't 100% accurate, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. They're, they're as zealous for Judaism as, as Muslims are for Islam. They, they, they love this thing. The, the whole system, and they're willing to kill if you threaten it, if you come in and, and challenge it, if you come in and, and preach something different. And so to not be against Jesus in this context, in that kind of environment, well, it's to be for him. It meant that you identified with him and his message in some way. And so that this man is out there publicly proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's telling us, and he's casting out demons. He's not against them. He's for them. He's, he's identified with them. He's on the team, even if he's not in the group. Is it, you make, does that make sense? You see the third reason now in verse 41. I call it the service slash reward reason. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ 
will by no means lose his reward. Now, know some of the features here. Know the act of service. It is simple and mundane, is it not? It's, it's giving a cup of water. Uh, I keep wanting to say cold water because there's another verse where Jesus uses that same kind of analogy, the cold water thing, but it doesn't have to be cold here, okay? It's just water. And, and, and just so you understand, that would have been like common courtesy in Jesus' day, in a day where people are traveling by foot and with you know, mules and beasts and it's hot and it's dusty just to come up to someone and, hey, you're just a fellow, tra- I've got water. Would you like? It's just common courtesy in that day and age. Even unbelievers would have done this. So there's really nothing special about the act itself. However, second, notice the specific reason behind this act of service. It's done because of Jesus, right? This isn't simply an act of common courtesy. This is a kindness shown to those who belong to Christ, which again, in a context of adversity, stands out. When everyone else around you who recognizes you to be a follower of Jesus would rather spit on you or hit you rather than help you, for someone to to show that kind of kindness to you simply because you belong to Jesus, well, that makes a big big difference. Who would do that? Who would show that kind of courtesy to someone because they belong to Christ? Probably people who also belong to Jesus, I think, is the, the point. And because of that, then note the reward that it exists. He says to show kindness to other believers simply because they belong to Jesus will bring reward in and of itself. In and of itself, and in this sense, I don't think the cup of water even matters per se. Like, there's no like ranking. Like, if I give water, I get this reward. If I give like a soda, I get this reward. Uh, you know, don't think of it in terms of what's being done. Just think of it in terms of the kindness that's being shown here, because someone belongs to Jesus because of their identification with Christ, the disciples should have shown this kind of kindness to the man casting out demons just because he belonged to Christ. It didn't matter if he was in the group or out of the group. It didn't, none of that mattered. They didn't do it. Rather, they tried to stop him. Clearly, clearly, their minds and hearts are pointing in the wrong direction, are they not? I mean, they're They're focused on all the wrong things. They're so enamored with their own greatness and their own importance and their own position that they cannot process someone serving Jesus who doesn't follow them and fall under their jurisdiction. That Jesus could work outside the bounds of the recognized group is something that they themselves cannot see because they're too busy looking at themselves, thinking they are the last, the fairest, and the only hope for bringing God's kingdom to earth. It's the same mentality. It's the same exact mentality. Mark begins these five scenes of correction, not not in the world around us. It exists there too. We're going to see it over the next few weeks, but he begins in the many wrong ways in which the church devalues, ignores, and forgets each other. In the realm of believers and in our tendency to to devalue other followers of Jesus just because they don't belong to the recognized group that we think of. And what Jesus shows the disciples and us, I think, is that he values anyone, anyone who in genuine faith calls on his name and identifies him, whether or not they're part of our group, that part doesn't matter. So let's apply it to us, okay? I've got three things. One's a reminder 
the following two are exhortations. Here we go. First, the church of Jesus is much larger than Cornerstone. And I'm, I'm applying it all to us, okay? Because I can't talk to everybody else. You're the only ones who show up to listen to me. Okay, so thank you. Um, church of Jesus is much larger than Cornerstone. And I am reminding you this morning, do not ever forget that. Don't forget it. We keep saying it, and we're going to keep saying it. Our name doesn't matter. Because it doesn't. Because Jesus is much larger than Cornerstone. Cornerstone is not the last fairest and only hope that Hampton Roads has or that this world has, just so you know. We don't have everything right. We don't do everything right. And Jesus can and will use many, many other churches besides our own to build his kingdom and to spread the gospel to our neighbors and our neighborhoods. And we should rejoice in that. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. It doesn't matter where the people end up going. Jesus doesn't need us. And if I may apply that personally to you for a moment, he doesn't need you either. Just like he doesn't need me. You and I are nothing. God graciously, kindly, patiently chooses to use us. Why? I have no idea. All right? But he doesn't need us. He chooses kindly to use us. But as individuals, we can have the same feelings about ourselves that we often have about our churches, that we have everything right and figured out, only God, ugh. We are but one thread of a tapestry. I want you to remember that, and, and don't forget it. Let it be the constant thought in your mind as you drive home and you look at this church and that church. And I know, I know not all of them are, are preaching the gospel, and I'll even mention that here in a moment. But, but remember, folks, we're just one thread of a tapestry that Jesus is using to build his church both here and around the world, so don't forget it, okay? That was a reminder. Here's the exhortation, secondly. We should love all believers with whom we interact. We should love all believers with whom we interact. Now, I've told you multiple times how I enjoy reading the, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. It's, it's not very often, I, th I think, actually. You know, here's, one, here's another example. There's not very many examples in the Gospels where you actually hear the content of Jesus' prayer. Okay, multiple times you see him praying. Very few times you hear the content of his prayer. And this is by far the longest. So think about the, the significance of that. You get to have a peek into what God the Son is saying to God the Father, okay? John 17, high priestly prayer. I love reading it, but there's a statement in that prayer that convicts me every time I read it in relation to what we're talking about today. Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. How do you think the church is doing in that? Like, not just our church. I mean, the church, the church of Jesus. Um, I'm giving us like a F minus or maybe a Z minus. I don't know what the lowest on the scale is, but whatever it is, we should probably go there. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. As you look around at the church today, you see that we are a long, long way away from those things. The church is splintered. And, and listen, there's good and bad reasons as to why the church is splintered. I acknowledge that. There's some good reasons why churches can't... <laughs> participate with each other, good reasons why believers can't be a part of certain churches. I mean, there are things that are so central to the gospel itself that, that eternity is at stake. Souls are at stake. The, the grace of God and salvation are at stake. But there are a lot of other stupid things that Christians and churches disagree on that have no bearing, no, no reason at all for tearing the church apart like it has. 
And I won't go through a list today because I would probably do you a disservice even trying. I'm just simply saying that it is good and right for churches and Christians to separate over heresy, but there is a lot of separation that occurs within the church of Jesus that has no, no real basis. We have a command from Jesus to love one another, right? Right? That's, that's how all men would know that we were his disciples, by our love for one another. And that doesn't just apply to the people in this room. It applies to all true believers in Jesus, regardless of what church they attend, what denomination they're a part of. We have a responsibility to love those who in faith love Jesus. And then the third one, and I'm kind of rushing, I apologize. We, sh we should find our only identity in Jesus as well. I have this uh, love-hate relationship with labels. Um, like when I say about labels, I'm talking about Christian labels, right? Like I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a superlapsarian, I'm a whatever, okay? You can throw out a lot of labels here. And for a while in seminary, I was kind of like going away from that, like labels are bad, we shouldn't have them at all kind of thing. And I had a professor who said, well, consider this. And he told a story. It was a great story. He said, it wasn't him, it was a friend of his got married, and he and his wife went on their honeymoon. And so as tends to happen, the groom's friends thought it would be great to play a joke, right, on them. So while they're gone, the family had come in and like filled the kitchen with, with food, Filled the fridge, filled the pantry. And this is back in the day when, like, aluminum cans had paper labels. Remember those days? So the friends come in, and of the many things they did to the house, one of the things they did was they went into the pantry, and they ripped off all the labels off the cans. So they come home from their honeymoon, and they open up the pantry. Oh, we got all this food. What is it? <laughs> and he said for weeks afterwards, like, they'd make dinner, and, like, well, let's just pick a can. You know, you don't, it's going to be corn, green beans, lima beans tomato sauce what are we going to have we don't know um, and his point was just very simply that labels are, are helpful and that it helps you know what's inside and he was right about that and it kind of pulled me back I get it because labels labels can be helpful but here's my concern oftentimes it seems to me that people find far too much identity in their labels you ask someone you know what are you what do you believe I'm a Baptist oh really I'm a Christian and I'm not trying to like you know hit one label simply against another and make it like, oh, I'm more spiritual. I'm just saying that you find people who, who seem to find their identity wrapped up in that label, as if the label is the most important thing to them. And I'd like to say that wasn't the case of, of us here, but let's face it, we're all the same. <laughs> no temptation has taken us except that which is common to man, and so if you're struggling, I'm struggling with it too, and vice versa. We, we, labels can be helpful, but folks, I just want to exhort you, your identity is in Christ, not in the labels. And I'm afraid that the church has done a great disservice to itself by focusing too much on some of those things. We were watching the, um, the second Hunger Games movie. It was like on television a while back, and we just started watching it. And uh, if you've never seen the movies, I will not in any way try to explain it, other than to say it was near the end, and uh, so they're all supposed to be fighting each other, right, in the arena. And there's a character named Finnick, who's secretly on Katniss's side, but she doesn't really know it yet. And right at the end of the movie, she lifts up her bow and arrow, she's going to kill him. And he holds up a bracelet that one of her friends gave him, and he says, remember who the true enemy is. And I kept thinking about that line as I was studying this week. Has the American church forgotten who the true enemy is? <laughs> the true enemy isn't the church next door. Yeah, they're loud sometimes, but they're not our enemy, all right? The, the true enemy isn't other believers and other denominations and other Christians around us. 
We spend so much time shooting at each other that we've forgotten that the real enemy that we're fighting is sin and Satan and all the brokenness that it is wreaking havoc on this world with, right? That's the true enemy. That's the true problem. I think we've forgotten it. And we're like the disciples looking at other believers who are not a part of our recognized group with suspicion and jealousy and a whole bunch of other stuff. And some of that may be due to the fact that in our American context, the church has experienced a position of where, where we were like, you know, it was friendly to us here. It was friendly in America. Now we've moved to like friendly slash neutral. And so it's been easy for us to spend our time bickering in one another. I'm no prophet. I'm not intending to come across as such right now. You just look around us. The American church is not moving back to a position of friendliness. Our culture and our context will probably move next just to pure neutrality and then to neutral antagonistic and I assume eventually to just antagonistic. And some of us hear those words and we think about what our, our children and our grandchildren are going to be growing up in and we're like, oh, that sounds so terrible. I'm scared. I'm not so sure it's all bad. I mean, I don't want to go through it, but I'm not so sure it's all bad, right? I mean, because then it will put the church back in a position very much like Jesus and the disciples were in here. And those three reasons that he gives for how to, to view other believers will apply again. It's amazing how in, in areas where the church is persecuted, you don't see a lot of infighting. You just don't. I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all. I'm just saying it doesn't happen a ton. When churches, when the, a church feels comfortable, then they begin to bicker with It's actually probably a good thing where our country is going. It'd be good for the gospel. It'll be good for the church. And it will clarify a lot as to who's in and who's out in the only group that matters. And that's Jesus's group, okay? You bow your heads and pray with me. Jesus, we uh, feel like this is kind of a, a weird message, a weird passage to be in, but you have targeted it specifically at your followers. And so I have attempted to do the same as best I could. And I ask now that you take the parts that are right and good and apply them to our hearts. We are, we are like the disciples. We are far too territorial and, and jealous and proud and thinking that we are your only hope. We are not. You are our only hope. You are this world's only hope. Never us, never our churches, never our denominations and movements. And we're just so, so stupid. That's all that we could define ourselves as. It's just, we are reminded again this morning that if not for your grace and your sovereignty, this world would have no hope. And so we come and we humble ourselves before you. We ask your forgiveness to the extent that we, we have done all the same things that the disciples are doing here. And just like you began by cleaning house in your own group of followers, we ask that you clean house here, convict our hearts of our own sinfulness. Help us to love the believers around us, to find our identity in you alone, remembering that in the end, no name on this earth matters, only the name of Jesus. May the only group we care about and the only group we promote and the only group we love be yours, not ours, we ask in Jesus' name.